Good morning, everyone, and welcome to morning worship here at Hillhead. Congratulations on finding your wellies and your umbrellas and your sou'westers and making it here this morning. Leading our worship this morning is our own minister, Katrina, but our guest preacher today is the Reverend Dr. Paul Goodliffe, who is head of ministry department at the Baptist Union of Great Britain, and we are delighted that you can join us, Paul. Thank you. It's good to be together again to worship God. I say it every time I have a Sunday off, and especially when I have two off together. Um, I do miss you, and it's lovely to be back again amongst you all. Our call to worship is a selection of verses from Psalm 30. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his faithful ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favour for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. You have turned my morning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And now let's come to God in prayer. We pray together. Journeying God, we have come together to worship from many different places and many different circumstances. Some of us have arrived full of hope and expectation, eager to listen for your voice speaking to us. Some of us have arrived weighed down by the pressures of daily life, in need of space to rest a while. Some of us have arrived certain in our faith and sure in our understandings. Some of us have arrived overwhelmed with doubt, minds full of questions and concerns. But here, in this place... At this time, we meet with one another and with you. Here, with these people, we set down our burdens and pause on our own journeys. Here, faithful and doubter, sceptic and believer find common ground. As we meet in the name of the risen Christ. As we sing our praises and offer our prayers as we listen for the quiet whisper of your voice and open ourselves once more to the gentle touch or the powerful shove of your spirit. Accept us just as we are. Free us from regret, guilt and shame. And renew us for the journey of faith, the path of discipleship that continues ahead of us. We make our prayer in the name of Christ Jesus, our companion and our guide. Amen. We have three Bible readings this morning, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. We listen together for the word of God in Scripture. From Ezekiel chapter 1. 
And above the dome, over their heads, there was something like a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was something that seemed like a human form. Upward from what appeared to be like the loins, I saw something like gleaming armour, something that looked like fire enclosed all around. And downward from what looked like the loins, I saw something that looked like fire, and there was splendour all around. Like the bow in a cloud on a rainy day, such was the appearance of the splendour all around. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. From the Gospel of John, beginning at verse, chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. And now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, 
you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. And from Acts chapter 9, again beginning at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he's praying, and he's been given a vision that a man named Ananias will come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I've chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored 
Then he got up and was baptised. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Shall we pray? May I speak in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And may all of us hear the whisper of your Spirit in the depths of our hearts, drawing us to the Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your welcome. It's very good to be here with you. Uh, Just to explain that um, about nine times a year, uh, a group of um, regional ministers uh, meet in uh, Oxfordshire uh, for something which we call the National Settlement Team, which is the way in which we help churches without ministers to find a new minister and ministers looking for a new church to find the next calling. And that was part of the process by which uh, you found Katrina and Katrina found you. And to that uh, gathering uh, comes John Greenshields from the Baptist Union of Scotland, and about every two or three years, the BUS kindly invite us all up to Scotland, and this is my third time of uh, uh, visiting Scotland under the auspices of the National Settlement Team. Uh, And uh, so uh, most of us have arrived yesterday uh, and are being hosted by various folk so that uh, this morning and uh, we can preach in churches uh, across, I think, broadly the central belt. I don't think we've gone much further north or south than that. And it's a particular joy for me to be with you here at uh, at Hillhead. Not least because um, we still kind of think of Katrina as, as one of our own as a Baptist Union of Great Britain minister. And I know she's Baptist Union of Scotland as well. And hey, but um, that's just uh, us thinking of Katrina as one of our own. We're very pleased that she's your minister. And I hope that you're pleased that she's your minister too. Yes, you're nodding at me, so that's good. So <laughs> you're okay, Katrina. Can I bring you greetings also from, the, uh, from my colleagues at the Baptist Union of Great Britain, uh, I, I work as uh, head of ministry, one of the leaders of the Baptist Union of Great Britain, and my colleagues at Didcot, at the offices we have there, bring you uh, their greetings. And also the church that I belong to um, in uh, a town called Bicester in Oxfordshire, uh, and uh, Baptist, uh, Orchard Baptist Fellowship in Bicester is the church I go to. It's a church plant. We meet in a school hall, well, a school drama studio, actually, uh, week by week, we don't have any buildings of our own, um, and uh, so we're, they'll be well into their morning service by now because they begin at half past ten, and uh, greetings from uh, the church where I'm a member. Uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ say hello through me. Well, the story this week, the big story, of course, has been the death of Margaret Thatcher, that uh, towering political figure of the last quarter of a century. Love her or loathe her, um, I tended to be in the latter category, I have to say, for most of her policies uh, contradicted those that I would probably espouse. Uh, And I hope I haven't offended too many um, ultra-conservatives amongst the congregation here this morning. But uh, uh, being a lifelong Labour supporter, I I wasn't her greatest fan. 
Although I did think, actually, when uh, she showed extraordinary courage, when it could have been so easy just to wash our hands of a little island in the South Atlantic and say, hey, let's not bury, uh, she showed great courage and determination at that point. I think it probably was amongst her best hours. I think we were right to recapture the Falklands. Um, but um, for most of her other policies, I tended to disagree with her. But nonetheless, she and her administration uh, went with the tide of history, actually, I think, and uh, changed the shape and culture of Britain. She's been credited with unwittingly fostering the rise of Scottish nationalism. Um, I'm waiting to hear some cheers, but I didn't hear any, so there you go. I think it was probably because whatever she did was going to be not welcomed in Scotland, so she was bound to foster Scottish nationalism in one way or another. She was what you might call a conviction politician. Not for her some cobbled-together consensus, but she knew she was right. Well, she believed she knew she was right, and she would take no prisoners. You certainly knew when you'd been handbagged by Maggie. And I think she's a figure who St. Paul would have um, identified with. I don't know about her policies, but he was what you might call a conviction theologian. And you knew where you were when you'd been the equivalent of being handbagged by St. Paul. He began life as a zealous, angry young man. Luke describes him as a rampaging wild beast in uh, his, the second part of his two-part work, Luke Acts. Literally, he's snorting with anger like an angry horse in his hateful opposition to the followers of the self-styled Messiah Jesus of Nazareth. He's got credentials from Caiaphas, the high priest, introducing him to the synagogue in Damascus, way to the north. And he is seeking their aid in uh, arresting followers of this Jesus. He's going to take them back to Jerusalem where they can stand trial. And we know where that trial will lead because we've already been introduced to St. Paul as he becomes known to us later but Saul of Tarsus, as he's called here. Because when the executioners wanted to have someone to look after their outer cloaks to give them better ability to throw the rocks at Stephen, the first martyr, it's at Saul's feet that they lay their cloaks. So he's not actually taken part in the stoning physically, but he certainly has been collaborating with those who picked up stones for their murderous task of killing Stephen. And Saul is close to his destination. We don't know whether Damascus is in the distance, but he's close to his destination when suddenly the one who's gone to arrest the followers of St. Paul is arrested himself on the way. He's arrested by a light from heaven. It's accompanied by a voice which he doesn't identify, but it's the voice which he identifies as God speaking to him. He soon realizes that this is actually Jesus of Nazareth who's speaking. Everyone sees the light, but only Saul sees the figure that inhabits the light. Everyone hears something that maybe is like thunder, but only Saul hears the words. 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Maybe Saul has been contemplating the vision of Ezekiel with which we opened our readings this morning. That's why we had that rather strange reading from Ezekiel. It was the, uh, a, a text which many pious and zealous Jews would meditate upon, hoping that they might be given the extraordinary privilege of seeing themselves what Ezekiel had seen. And it was common part of Jewish religious pious practice to meditate upon this passage from Ezekiel. And so when perhaps Saul, if he wasn't meditating upon it at the time, certainly had done so in the past, when suddenly a light from heaven and he falls to his feet, perhaps he already knows what to expect, a voice which will speak to him. But imagine his shame and his horror when it's God who's speaking to him but the God who identifies himself as Jesus. The Jesus whom Saul is persecuted. Jesus who addresses him in the place where God speaks. Earlier in Acts 5, verse 39, Saul's teacher and mentor, a man called Gamaliel, had warned that any attempt to put down this new movement ran the risk of undoing God's work. If it was not God's doing, Gamaliel had wisely said, then it's bound to fail. But if it was God's work, Gamaliel said, you may even be found fighting against God. Saul realizes to his horror that he has been doing precisely that. He has been fighting against God in seeking to arrest these followers of Jesus of Nazareth. And that realization, if nothing else, strikes him blind and uh, pushes him to the ground and reduces him, I suppose, to a kind of emotional and psychological and spiritual wreck. While on the way to do what he thought was God's way, He finds he's joined the way, the earliest description of Christians. This is the archetypal, dramatic conversion. None more dramatic, I suppose, in all of Scripture, nor perhaps of any greater significance, because this man, this Saul of Tarsus, was going to become God's chosen instrument for the conversion of, of the Gentiles, as well as the conveying of the good news about Jesus to Israel itself. The whole trajectory from a minor Galilean cult within Judaism to the worldwide faith which Christianity is now rests in no small part upon this conversion. This is a turning point in the history of the world. Some people have said that if the first great turning point in history was the death and resurrection of Jesus, the second great turning point was the conversion of this man. As with all conversions, there is a reorientation of life and perspective, a reordering of priorities. But conversions are not just for the beginning of our Christian experience, our journey of faith. They are actually a feature of the whole of this journey 
which we've been called to follow. That other great towering figure in the early church, Peter, who, like Saul, who gets a name change, which I'm particularly proud of because he gets called Paul. My parents called me Paul. Peter gets a name change as well. His first name is Simon. He gets renamed by Jesus as Peter, Petra, the rock. Peter undergoes another conversion after the resurrection. I mean, he's already heard the call of Jesus and responded and followed Jesus. He's already identified who this Jesus is. It's Peter who says in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And it's already cost him dearly to follow Jesus, the Messiah. Matthew 19, verse 27, Peter says, voicing what all the other disciples were saying, look, we've given up everything to follow you, he says. (laughs) But now he needs another conversion, a fresh conversion experience. He needs to be converted from a failed disciple to a renewed follower of Jesus. From going back to the old ways, he says, I'm going back to what I know well. I'm going fishing. I don't know about you, (laughs) but I'm going back to the old way of life. He needs to be converted once again. Converted for that renewed mission for the future to feed the flock of Christ. I wonder what kind of conversion God is calling us to this morning. Perhaps. I don't know any of you apart from Katrina. So I can say this. But maybe for one or two here, it's that first conversion. That decision to stop going our own way and to go Christ's way. Instead of running away from God as fast as we can to turn around 180 degrees and say, I'm actually going to go your way now, Lord. That complete turnaround, that volt fast, which is that first coming to Christ as Savior. Maybe that's the conversion you need this morning. To say for the first time, I will go God's way. But for most of you, I guess, that conviction that you're going to go God's way is quite some way in the past. (laughs) Maybe many decades. Maybe only a few months. I don't know. Is there some new conversion that God is calling you to today? Maybe like that fierce defender of his own understanding of the truth, Saul, It will be to see that the very people whom you think we should be opposed to are in fact to be welcomed. Four or five generations ago, Baptists used to think that Catholics were the people that we should be um, opposed to. And we almost identified ourselves in doing what Catholics didn't do. That was how we identified ourselves. And I'm aware that Glasgow is a city which is Uh, at least in part, divided upon those kind of sectarian lines. But for most of us, now we understand that actually Catholics are our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
with whom we shall spend eternity. So we better get used to loving them now because we have to love them in the future. That's an old kind of group that we thought we were opposed to, that we've discovered we need to welcome and discover our friends. The big issue facing many of our churches at the moment, of course, is the homosexual community, who so often see the church as a body which says to them, no, 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 just go away, we don't like you. We should be opposed to what you represent maybe the conversion we're being called to is to discover that actually the very people who we perhaps find difficult are the people whom God wants us to welcome and love and say, you're welcome here. That you are part of God's people and we want you to be part of this people too. That's a difficult journey for some churches to take and to face And it's a journey I know that you've been wrestling with a little bit through uh, a a, a program which we've devised south of the border to say, actually, we're not opposed, but you're welcome. Maybe like Peter, it will be returned again to that first sense of calling and passion. You've forsaken that first sense of conviction and love Instead of fishing for men and women, you've gone back to fishing for profit. And the conversion that God has for you this morning is a rediscovery of what God has called you to be as a Christian disciple. Or maybe it's the conversion to a new understanding of what it is to be a Christian, a new understanding of prayer. I feel myself as if I'm going through, at the moment, a a conversion. It's a long process, but I've been involved in establishing and founding something called a, an order for Baptist ministers, a, a religious order, a new monastic movement, if you like. And I'm discovering I'm being converted all over again to some ways of praying and being. Without a doubt, whatever the way that God calls you to be um, converted, it will be costly. In his explanation to Ananias in Damascus for the outrageously risky thing that God was asking him to do, the Lord said that he would show Saul how much he must suffer for my name. And when Jesus restores Peter to the mission that will end in suffering and death as his Lord had died, Jesus tells him the manner of his death in John 21. Tradition has it that both Paul and Peter ended their lives as martyrs in Rome. Peter being crucified upside down because he did not think himself worthy to be crucified the right way up as his Lord was. And the final word to Peter is, follow me. And to Saul, you will be told what to do. To be converted, to follow Jesus is to be told by another what we are to do and how we are to live. It's to follow one who is Lord, another who directs our steps instead of us deciding where we'll go, another who chooses our path instead of deciding what our path will be. To follow with conviction, to go the way of Jesus Christ, to be ready to suffer for those convictions, that's the daily challenge of this lifetime of going in the way of Jesus Christ a daily conversion to going his way. 
Are you ready for another conversion this morning? If so, you'll discover that the God of grace is ready to welcome you when you see him afresh. George Herbert, the great 17th century pastor in one of his poems puts it like this. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. We might think we're not worthy of a new conversion. But the God of grace beckons us and says, come, follow me. Amen. Let us come together in our praise for each other and in our praise for others. Let us pray. God of the extraordinary compassion, we give thanks for all your mercies that you have showered upon us. You have given us life in all its fullness. You have given us enough resources to sustain us. And you have revealed yourself to us in many ways. Forgive us that we are not always responsible custodians of all your gifts. God of the extraordinary invitation, feed my lambs, follow me. These extraordinary invitations are given to us all to share in the work of your kingdom, to share in the fruits of the Spirit, and to share the joys of the new life in you. Forgive us when we choose not to hear your voice. God of the extraordinary transformations, we give thanks for the extraordinary changes that you make in people's lives. We rejoice in your saving grace that makes this possible. You call us to follow you so that we may make changes in our own lives and in the lives of others. God of the extraordinary sacrifice, you sent your son to become flesh among us, and yet we often do not recognize him. He was without sin, but chose to go through the waters of baptism 
he hung on a cross for us and did not save himself. God of the extraordinary resurrection, you walked among us on the Emmaus Road. You walked among us in the locker room. You walked among us on the seashore and on the lakeside. And you walk among us today and every day. God of the ordinary, the ordinary people to whom you offer extraordinary forgiveness, the privileged and the widow who had nothing, the disciples and the tax collectors, the prodigal and his resentful brother, the lepers and the woman at the well, the rock and the doubter, to someone and to everyone. Help us to look so that we may see you. Help us to listen so that we may hear you. Help us to follow you so that we may have new life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Lead us from here, journeying God, in our faith and in our doubt, in our weakness and in our strength. Lead us out in the power of your Spirit and in the footsteps of Christ. Lead us, guide us, accompany us. Lead us on in the ways we know and the ways you have yet to show us this day and every day. Oh,